Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Take talk with you anywhere with the all-new Talk 1370 app. Listen to your favorite shows. Keep up with the latest breaking news and more. Search for Talk 1370 in the App Store or find the links at Talk1370.com. It's anywhere I need. Talk 1370, the right choice. It's time for Come and Talk It with your host, Michael Cargill, brought to you by Texas Law Shield. Over the last decade, Michael has championed and supported the rights of law-abiding Texans to own and use firearms. He is the owner of Central Texas Gunworks, a veteran of the United States Army, and has achieved national exposure in such prestigious media outlets such as Forbes Magazine, Fox Business News, CNN Money, AOL, BBC World News, Huffington Post, and the New York Times. Cargill vigorously defends lawful gun ownership in this country without regard to party politics. And now, here's Michael Cargill. Good afternoon, Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world. Let's praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Today, I tell you, family, my heart is heavy. It's really heavy. I've been thinking about this Philando Castile shooting uh, since Friday after the verdict was released. And I got to tell you, today, I want to reach into your soul. I want to talk to you about something that no one else wants to discuss. What are the effects of slavery and segregation in America? Think about that and ask yourself, what are the effects of slavery and segregation? How does it affect the Americans of African descent and Americans of European descent? The reasoning For my question is because of the Philando Castile shooting in Minnesota. Philando Castile was a cafeteria manager at a school in Minnesota. He and his girlfriend, along with their four or her four year old daughter, were on their way home from the grocery store when they were stopped by a police officer for a broken taillight. Listen to this very long, long video of the girlfriend as she described what happened on that day. Southbound. Southbound, thank you very much. And we got pulled over what allegedly was supposed to be a broken taillight. When he, he let us know that we had a broken taillight, he asked us, were we aware of it? We said no. As we said no, he tells us to put our hands in the air. We have our hands in the air. At the time, at the time as our hands is in the air, he asks for license and registration. My boyfriend carries all his information in a thick wallet in his right side back pocket. As he's reaching for his back pocket wallet, he lets the officer know, officer, I have a firearm on me. I begin to yell, but he's licensed to carry. After that, he began to take off shots. Don't move, don't move. But how can you not move when you're asking for license and registration? It's either you want my hands in the air 
or you want my information and my identification. It's either you want me to freeze when I'm not being arrested, or you want me to reach for my identification to let you know who I am. I can't do two things at one time. Listen, okay? I'm Trayvon Martin. You, Trayvon Martin. We're Sandra Dean. You're Sandra Dean. We are not. We are the people. We are the people. And we can't keep allowing these people who are supposed to serve and protect us take us away from our family, take us away from the loved ones, take us away from these children. He was a good man. He, he worked at the Selby Elementary School, Obama. He works there. Listen. Some of you kids, some of y'all kids might know him. His name was Phil. J.J. Hill is where he worked. And all of you guys, he was never a bad man. He never did anything to hurt anyone. He was the quietest, most laid-back person you would ever meet. He was loving. So even for the police to take him away, nothing within his body language said intimidation. Listen. Nothing within his body said, shoot me. Nothing within his body language said, kill me, I want to be dead. He did not do nothing but what the police officer asked of us, mm. which was to put your hands in the air and get your license and registration. And tell me about that officer. What was his race? He was Asian. He was short. He was black. No glasses. About five, six and a half. About 156. Was his name 70. Officer Vang? Um, I'm not sure. I tried to get his badge number. I tried to get all of his information. They would not release any information to me. Badge number. They said that when the investigation was final or started, that that would let me know what was going on. All they gave me was a business card. Were they trying to help him by any... any that is the police officer soothed him. They pulled him over to the side and they begin to calm him down and tell him that it was okay and he would get through this. What about as first, what as about they put aid? me in the backseat of the what police about first car. Aid for, for what about they first left aid? him sitting in the car after they shot him. No, no one checked his Nobody pulse. checked his pulse. Nothing. The police officer that was on my side walked away to call for backup and the police officer that shot him was still standing there with, no one checked his, with his gun still drawn mm -hmm. after he was shot. We were coming from the grocery store from putting food in my house for myself and my daughter. We had all been at work all day. He had just left from the shop for getting his hair done for his birthday. We had left from dropping my sister off who lay, lives by the state fairgrounds. And as we're dropping her off from getting groceries from her, the officer pulls us over to talk about a broken headlight that was not broken. And one of the first things they teach you uh, in a permit to carry class, I've been through that, <laughs> and when an yes. officer pulls you over, mm. let him know that you have a permit to carry and that you have a weapon. And who lets you know that they have a weapon if they have intent to use it? told us that several times. Several times they told us that. And he didn't give us the opportunity before he let off rounds. He asked us for license and registration. As he was reaching for his license and registration, he asked, he told him he had a bear and he began to shoot him. He killed him for no reason. That's murder. And all that 
Because I wanted everyone in the world to know that no matter how much the police tamper with evidence, how much they stick together, no matter yes, how they, yes. manip they manipulate our minds to believe what they want, I wanted to put it on Facebook and go viral so that the people could see. So that the people could see. I wanted the people to determine who was right and who was wrong. I want the people to be the testimonies here. All of us saw with our eyes. Only thing you guys didn't see is when he shot. And if I would have moved while that gun was out, you would have shot me. So I chose to allow the video to go live 10 seconds before my phone died because I wanted everybody in the world to see what the police do and how they roll. And it's not right. It's not acceptable. I didn't do it for pity. I didn't do it for fame. I I did it so that the world knows that these police are not here to protect and serve us. They are here to assassinate us. They are here to kill us because we are black. We don't support each other enough so they feel like they, they can take us off the map. And it's not okay. A good man, a 35-year-old man, worked for St. Paul Public School, never been fingerprinted, never been handcuffed. He has been taken away from his community. This is detrimental to everybody that's here today, not only me, myself, and my daughter, but everyone in the world. I just ask that everyone continue to pray. I ask that we all get justice. Anybody who's ever lost a loved one or someone close, dear to them, I feel for you guys. And I'm praying for each and every face I see out here tonight because no one deserves, no one deserves this. I have not been able to sleep. I have not been able to eat. I have not been able to work. I have not been able to do anything besides hold my daughter, tell her I thank her how much of a super shero she is. Because she is an angel. She knew that he was gone before I knew. And she said, Mom, the police are bad guys. They killed him and he's never coming back. He's never coming back. And the fact that my four-year-old had to tell me that he was gone, as I'm telling her, never speak negativity until our earth. We only speak positive things. She knew that he was gone and he wasn't coming back. They didn't let me know he was dead until 3 o'clock this morning. Mm. I didn't arrive home until about 5 this morning. Not right. Where I asked the BCA, is he dead, more than one time. And all they could tell me is at this point they don't know. But they knew he was dead when they took him from the scene. They told me he was at Regis Hospital. When I got to Regis Hospital, he was not there. He was at HCMC. They sent me in the whole wrong direction, so I never got to see him before they did whatever they did. I never got to say my last words to that man because they told me he was at a location that he was not at. Why did they do that? Who knows who the tracks they're trying to cover and why the police department is trying to cover it, but it's not acceptable, it's not okay, and it will not be tolerated. Why would he go to HCMC when there's hospitals closer? If they take him to HCMC, that's a longer ride there. And they show you, he could have lived. They didn't even comfort her. They, they could have took him right to Regions or United. They killed her boyfriend, yes. but didn't offer comfort yes. for her and her four-year-old daughter. Exactly. I want them, I want, um, not only do I want justice and want peace, but I feel like they deserve him the best funeral that they can throw for him. I feel like doves need to be released. I feel like there needs to be a pastor here praying over these.
these people, nurturing these people. Minnesota got Minnesota got money. This whole time. Minnesota has money to build stadiums we don't need. They don't have money to help these people. They need to give back to these communities. They need to start funding these funerals to the people that they are taking off this earth for no apparent reason. If we can come together to build a stadium, we can come together to make a wonderful funeral. So that we can embrace this beautiful life that is no longer with us anymore. The officer walked up to the vehicle and asked Philando if he knew his taillight or headlight, whichever one was busted. He said no, and the officer asked them to put their hands in the air. The officer asked for his driver's license. And as Philando was reaching for his driver's license, he said to the officer, I have a firearm on me. Now, at that point, I believe Philando Castile made a minor mistake. Mind you, as a lot of people do when they are pulled over by police, people get nervous and they do really weird things. You should never talk and move at the same time. But that mistake should not have cost him his life. When I am at the gun range as an instructor calling the range, I'm in charge and I have had hundreds of guns pointed at me by nervous individuals, heat stroke victims, heart attack victims, and most recently, a person suffered a brain aneurysm. I had a few people that were so nervous they were screaming. I've received death threats by way of phone calls, postcards. I've had crazy people walk into the gun store and threaten to blow the place up. At the point I'm afraid to do my job and treat everyone with respect they deserve, I will retire and go home. In all situations I just mentioned, I'm in charge and in control. I would give clear instructions. One, I was told that once I was told there there was a firearm in the vehicle. I will tell everyone to freeze, then ask where is the firearm located, then proceed to give clear instructions on what the driver should do. As an instructor and watching how people conduct themselves when they are most nervous, if you yell, they will do the opposite of what you tell them. If you're making them most nervous, but if you get it together and you speak clear, slow, and firm, they will comply and do exactly what you want them to do. But if you yell, put your hands up, give me your driver's license, don't move. Put your hands up, give me your driver's license, don't move. Put your hands up, give me your driver's license, don't move. Put your hands up, give me your driver's license, don't move. 
Put your hands up. Give me your driver's license. Don't move. What do you think is going to happen? This is Michael Cargill, and you are listening to Come and Talking. Peace. This is Maj Toure. You're listening to Come and Talk at Radio with Michael Cargill. Get the latest business news from CNBC. Weekday mornings at 6.30 and 8.30 and weekday afternoons at 12.30, 4.30 and 5.30. We make you smarter, hopefully it'll also make you some money. Stay connected with Talk 1370, the, the right, right choice. Hey Austin, wake up and fly right on Talk 1370. Welcome back to Come and Talk It. And now here's Michael Cargill. All right. So let me bring into the conversation because we're talking about Philando Castile shooting. Um, we're talking about, you know, because I, I have a heavy heart on this one. Uh, I really want to reach into everyone's soul. And my question in the beginning of the show was, what are the effects of slavery and segregation in America? And how does that affect everyone, both sides? Um, so, you know, that's that's my question that's out there, because this is. This is heavy here. Uh, I, I do want to explain to you before I bring in uh, two guests I have for you. I, I want to explain when you get pulled over by law enforcement and let's say you have a handgun in your vehicle. You don't have a license. Honestly, with the, the way the law is, you really you don't have a license. You don't have to be forthcoming with that information that there's a gun in the vehicle. But I always tell people that it's important. You know, it is important to be forthcoming. Um, when it comes when you have a firearm inside the vehicle, but you don't you don't have to under the law. But once you have a license as a license holder with a handgun in the vehicle or on you in the vehicle, you have to be forthcoming with that information. You have to give the officer your driver's license, your handgun license if you're carrying a handgun. Now, you also what you should do as well. This is and this is more about your safety. This is not about the law, but for your safety. And the safety of everyone inside the vehicle and the motor in public, you know, what I do is I, I don't communicate anything verbally. I just go ahead and hand the officer my driver's license and my handgun license. The reason I do that is because I don't know who's over to the right side of the vehicle uh, or, you know, or who's listening or whatever. So I hand the officer my driver's license and my handgun license and just wait for the officer to communicate with me uh, and then go from there. I don't say any, I don't like to say firearm. I don't like to say gun or any of those words at all, to be honest with you. But we really shouldn't have to do that. Honestly, it's really, you know, when it comes to certain situations, you're in that situation where the officer is in charge of that big scheme of things. So he's in charge or, or she's in charge and they should kind of control what's going on um, and dictate to you, you know, because you're in their world, to be honest with you. And that, that's kind of how I feel about that. Okay, he said that, okay, sir, uh, I do have a firearm on me. At that point, the officer should have said, okay, okay, hold on. Everyone freeze. Don't, no one move. Okay, so you say you have a firearm on you. Where is that firearm located? You, you communicate with clear instructions. But if you're scared, you're afraid, then maybe being in law enforcement is not the job for you. 
if, if just by someone saying the words, uh, sir, I just want you to know that I do have a firearm on me. Someone saying that, if that, that scares you, then you're in the wrong profession. Let me bring into the conversation. Um, first, let me bring in Harold Lyons. Harold is a, a schoolmate. Uh, Harold is in uh, Florida, and we actually uh, attended the same school together. Harold knows my grandmother, the one that's on the Cargill side, Miss Cargill or Mrs. Cargill, whatever you want to call her. And, and I'm, I'm going to let you tell – I'm going to let Harold tell you about Miss Cargill and, and how I got to where I am today. Harold, welcome to Come and Talk It, sir. Mike, it's good to talk to you again, man. Miss um, Cargill, Miss Edwina Cargill, uh, a fixture at our school. She taught my older brother and younger brother as well, and um, everybody had much respect for your grandmother. She uh, she started the Black Humanities class, and if you were out at Nova, you had to go through the Black Humanities program, uh, perhaps for a sense of purpose, but more importantly for a sense of family guidance from Miss Cargill. And we got much love for her as well as for you, man, because of her. I appreciate that. And, and, and Harold, tell me your thoughts about, well, first, what do you do now? Um, contractor. Okay. Contractor, build homes, insurance restoration, and uh, that's what we do. All right. And you have how many kids? Uh, eight, four girls, four boys, and three grandchildren. And three grandchildren. Wow, I tell you what, I think I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. Okay, three grandchildren. All right, so, you know, what what do you tell your, you know, your kids, your well, grandkids about, you know, the interaction with law enforcement? Well, here, here's what I say, Mike. First and foremost, uh, I'm a member of a fraternity, and I have several uh, fraternity brothers that are either police chiefs um, and close fraternity brothers that my children call uncles. So years before we started having these deep kind of conversations regarding how we need to conduct ourselves with the police, uh, my brother's uh, had conversations with my sons about how they need to interact with police officers because they on the front line and they see uh, what takes place. And um, so my sons have been instructed from young, this is how you hand your driver's license, make, don't make any certain movements, uh, anything like that. Now, the, as good as that is, it's also a little disappointing because my mother, who's, who's 80 years old and who grew up in Miami, uh, and my father, who raised me, was from a little town called Quitman, Georgia, he likewise had to conduct himself a certain way around law enforcement. So it's sad to see that some 67 years later that we as black folk, to some degree, still have to um, instruct our kids, particularly our sons, on how they need to act around law enforcement. Is that, um, is that something you think we should do? Um, should we oh, have yeah. to teach the kids how to act or yeah. or is we it? Let me, and let me tell you the reason why. Okay. Um, I have daughters as well. I don't have any conversations with my sons, um, and this might be unfair, but I don't have any conversations with my sons about putting themselves in a compromising position. In other words, I don't tell them, listen, don't go to, don't go to some guy's house and lay in bed with him and not think so. I tell my daughters that. Sweetheart, wherever you tell me you're going, you need to go. Because I, I was the type of father. If something happened to one of my daughters, uh, I'm getting that behind. I'm being somebody behind. But like I told them, I can't get you on rape. So the conversations that any parent has with their daughter is definitely going to be different than they have with their son. Okay. And so, so likewise, yeah, we have to have those conversations. And I have many white friends, many white friends. And I got much love for them. But I also understand that we've had conversations. When we talk certain things, there's certain things they just don't grasp. 
no different than someone who doesn't have a daughter doesn't grasp certain concerns that you have when you have a daughter versus a son. There's just simply certain conversations they'd never think about having with their kids. And that's because they, though we might live in the same neighborhood, I live in a predominantly white neighborhood. My kids have gone to predominantly white schools. I have a daughter that's in law school at Florida State. I have a son that's in school at Florida State. Um, the conversation we have with them is different because at times they're not going to be given the benefit of the doubt because of their color. Now, thank God that we have not necessarily overtly encountered anything, but nevertheless, I've kept that before them. Not to wear it as some kind of um, scarlet letter or something they can pull out as a, a card of accusation, but the reality of life. And now speaking more specifically regarding Castile, um, I would say for the first time since we've had this, for, for lack of a better term, this run on, on male black life over the past five or six years, I cried. Mm. I cried and I called my sons who were of age. I called my son-in-law. I called my nephews and I cried. Because Castile could have been my son, my nephew, because like, we've always instructed our sons to obey the law. And there's nothing that this young brother could have done necessarily different than what he did. He obeyed the law. He obeyed our uncle, their uncle, the police officer, and he still ended up dead with four shots, four bullets in him, nine shots in the car. And thank God that four-year-old child wasn't killed. Let me bring into the conversation Marshall. Marshall, hold on there. Um, just one second. Uh, Marshall, I, I actually met Marshall probably a few months ago, and Marshall is a she's a firearms instructor, and Marshall's out of Atlanta. And let me tell you, and I'm very very picky and very critical of instructors. And I tell you, if I see something wrong, I will let you know <laughs> in the hot second. And let me tell you, I was so impressed with Marshall when I met her. Uh, I was just, you know, just floored, impressed, you know, and, and it's it's nice to get up there and talk to people, teach a class, uh, teach a handgun class, gun safety course, and where everyone's on the same sheet of music and we've never even met each other in person. We've talked to each other over the phone, uh, maybe, you know, going back and forth on Facebook, but never in person. And the, the stand shoulder to shoulder with someone who says the exact same thing you say. I tell you, I was so impressed. And, and, and I just want everyone I, I want to introduce Marshall from Atlanta, Georgia. Marshall, welcome to come and talk. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Outstanding. And, and, and tell them because Marshall's with the National African-American Gun Association. But tell them about your company. Yeah, so I started a company last year called Trigger Happy Firearm Instruction. Um, my main intent was to make sure I reached out to minorities and get them proper firearm education. You know, a lot of people go to the range, especially black people go to the range. And, you know, we have firearms. A lot of us have carry permits, but we've never actually taken classes. And I found out while working at a range here in Atlanta that the reason we don't take classes is because we don't feel comfortable in those classes. The instructors don't look like us. And a lot of times we're intimidated. So I felt like, well, I wanted to be the change I want to see. I want us to be educated, so I have to do the education. All right. And so, Marshall, give me your input on the Philando Castile shooting. Well, with the Philando Castile shooting, one, um, I, I myself cried when it happened. Actually, at the time that the incident happened, the murder took place, I was uh, married to a police officer here in Atlanta, um, I remember calling him as soon as I found out what happened. I was crying. Um, I was enraged, to be quite honest. I was extremely 
uncomfortable with how the media tried to spin the situation and tried to make it seem like he was a criminal when he actually followed the law. Um, personally, if I had been in that exact same situation, I personally wouldn't have moved at all, to be quite honest. But that doesn't warrant him losing his life because he moves to reach to get his, uh, his identification. I've seen, and my husband and I talked about this a lot, where other people, you know, who weren't black have done far worse things in that same traffic stop scenario and still got to go home. So I feel like we shouldn't be persecuted because of the color of our skin. And if you're afraid of policing people who don't look like you, then you shouldn't be a police officer. Mm. And let me go back to Harold. Go ahead, Harold. Yes, I'm sorry. No, you're um, no, no, you go ahead. You get. I'm, I'm, I'm just in awe of the young lady that's an instructor. Oh, absolutely. As <laughs> in, in, <laughs> I'm gonna tell you, Marshall is no joke. I'm gonna tell you right now, she is no joke. And oh, just, I, the energy I felt from Marshall yesterday. Let me tell you about yesterday. Yesterday, we actually had the opportunity to teach a class uh, with over 80 people. Uh, some gun safety, you know, kind of like a beginner handgun class and, and gun safety course. Uh, we were in Houston, Texas for Juneteenth. And I was impressed because people came from all over the state of Texas to attend this training. We had people come in from Dallas. Uh, people came in from, you know, Austin, Houston, Galveston, you know, to attend the class and to listen to uh, Maj Ture uh, from Black Guns Matter. Uh, to Marshall from Atlanta, uh, to Trina Spells, who's in Houston, and to myself in Austin, Texas. And I was just very, uh, the, the instructors, how we were all on the same sheet of music. We never taught together at all, never sat in the classroom together, and it just flowed nice. I mean, we just went boom, 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 you know, and just flowed off of each other. And I tell you, Marshall is no joke. She is right on point. Perfect. And I'm and I I am very critical of instructors. I will get rid of an instructor in a second. I will tell you, no, there's no way in the world I will I will teach a class or have this person in my class. But I'm telling oh, you, wow. I was so impressed with Marshall and you have no when my instructors will tell you the things that I'm saying about you, they will know how good you are. Because <laughs> they know how, wow. how mean and how critical I am when it comes to instructors and teaching individuals, especially when it comes to guns. Thank you so much, especially coming from you. You've been, you know, in the firearm industry for, you know, longer than I've been alive. Um, and I think uh, Excuse me, you calling me old? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I heard. I will come through this so, phone. <laughs> you have a lot of wisdom. But as a new instructor, I'm always open to criticism because I know that I don't know everything. And that's where a lot of instructors mess up. They think they know everything. Right. So everything that I said at the class yesterday, it's been coming from critiques. From feedback from other instructors, I welcome any instructor to come take my class or listen to me speak to give me feedback and tell me, well, maybe there's a better way you can present that information so your students learn it better. Um, so I'm always open. I'm, I'm a sponge. So I definitely appreciate any feedback that you have. And, and thank you for your words. And I tell you, it, it was it was very empowering. I, I walked away feeling like, wow. You know, because I, I had a rough week last week, you know, dealing with Austin City Council and things of that nature. And I tell you, when I walked away yesterday, I felt empowered. I felt refreshed. I felt like I just took a nap and I've been recharged and I was ready to come back to work today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. All right. So I do want to say, you know, you know, instead of an, an LTC instructor or a private security instructor, I feel like sometimes that I'm a therapist, you know, even though I'm not clearly a therapist. 
But I tell you, for that Juneteenth, you know, that was uh, that was an honor and a privilege for me to spend time with, you know, great instructors from around the country. And, you know, and, and the one thing I remember from yesterday is I stood in front of that class and I explained briefly the handgun laws in Texas. I then turned to the class and I asked them, now that you know what the handgun laws are and you know that you can have a handgun in your vehicle and you don't need a license. How do you get in trouble with a handgun in your vehicle? A class of over 80 people in unison all said immediately without thinking about it. Mind you, these people did not know each other other than all of them were Americans of African descent said driving while black. That's true. They did. We all said the same thing. And that's actually really unfortunate that that was our response to. This is Michael Cargill, and you are listening to Come and Talking. This is Brittany Glaze, and I get my global gun news from Michael Cargill on Come and Talk It. Get breaking news, exclusive contests, and more delivered right to your inbox. I like knowing things. Join the Right Choice Club at Talk1370.com and you'll be in the know. Just go to Talk1370.com and click on the Right Choice Club from Talk 1370. The Right Choice. The Right Choice for breaking news first. Talk 1370. The Right Choice. Welcome back to Come and Talk It. And now here's Michael Cargill. All right. So it's, it's really it's something else when you have an entire class, an entire group of people that are afraid of law enforcement. And that to me, that's a problem. And here we're talking about the Philando Castile shooting and that happened in Minnesota. Uh, we're talking about the effects that have, you know, things of this nature have on the country. We're talking about where does this come from? Where does the mentality come from? There is a police mentality. And there's also, um, believe it or not, there's a, an everyone else mentality. And what is this? Us against them mentality. What's going on there? And I want you to listen to this one lady's Facebook live posting that she did not too long ago. I literally had to pull over at the very next exit and just get myself together because it blew my mind of how frightened I was that a police officer stopped me. And I never make videos. But as you know, I just posted on Facebook that I left the base about 15 minutes ago. And um, I was on I-20. And I got pulled over by a police officer and I couldn't understand why I pull over immediately and he pulls up behind me and then he mo he gets out the car and he motions for me to get out of the car and he's talking to me and he said, I just wanted to check on you because you were driving under the speed limit and I kind of laughed and I said I was going too slow. And he said, no, 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 no. It's, it's just that if drivers are really tired or if they're inebriated, they tend to drive slower. And I said, I just left the base 15 minutes ago. And I explained the situation. And he said, okay, that's great. And, you know, thank you for your service. And he said, I was just checking on you. And as he said that, I just broke down crying. And I told him, I said, I was so scared. But 
the positive spin is that he really was just a nice officer checking to see if I was okay. But the sad piece is that I shouldn't have had to feel this scared. All right, so, and that's a young lady that, you know, was pulled over by law enforcement, and she kind of, you know, told Facebook, everyone on Facebook, how she felt when she was being pulled over by police. And a lot of people feel that way. You have kids that feel that way. You know, there's there's something going on, and, and you know, and I, I'm, I'm we need to get deep here. We really need to get deep, and I've actually invited in a different show, I'm going to have a, a, a psychologist on the show to talk about this, because my question to the psychologist is, you know, what is going on? How far back does this go? And I'm going to take you a little a little back. I'm going to take you back to the 1700s. And I want to tell you, if you don't know, you're going to learn today. And I want to tell you about the Willie Lynch letter and the making of a slave. This speech was said to have been delivered by Willie Lynch on the bank of James River in the colony of Virginia in 1712. Lynch was a British slave owner in the West Indies. He was invited to the colony of Virginia in 1712 to teach his methods to slave owners there. And this is how the letter went. Greetings, gentlemen. I greet you here on the bank of the James River in the year of our Lord, 1712. First, I shall thank you, the gentlemen of the colony of Virginia, for bringing me here. I'm here to help you solve some of your problems with slaves your invitation reached me on my modest plantation in the West Indies, where I've experimented with some of the newest and still the oldest methods of, for control of slaves. Ancient Rome should, would envy us if my program is implemented. As our boat sailed south on the James River, named for our illustrious king, whose version of the Bible cherish, uh, I saw enough to know what your problem is not unique. While Rome used cords of woods as crosses for standing human bodies along its highways in great numbers, you are here using the tree and the rope in, on occasions. I caught the whiff of a dead slave hanging from a tree. A couple miles back, you are not only losing valuable stock by hangings, you are having uprising slaves are running away and your crops are sometimes left in the fields too long for maximum profit. You suffer occasional fires. Your animals are killed. Gentlemen, you know what your problems are. I do not need to elaborate. I'm not here to enumerate your problems. I'm here to introduce you to a method of solving them. In my bag here, I have a foolproof method for controlling your black slaves. I guarantee every one of you that if installed correctly, it will control the slaves for at least 300 years. My method is simple. Any member of your family or your overseer can use it. I've outlined a number of differences among the slaves, and I take these differences and make them bigger. I use fear, distrust, and envy for control purposes. These methods have worked on my modest plantation in the West Indies, and it will work throughout the South. Take this simple little list of differences and think about them. On top of my list is age, but it's there only because it starts with an A. The second is color or shade. There is intelligence, size, sex, sizes, a plantation status on plantations. Attitude of owners, whether the slave live in the valley or any hill. East, west, north, south, have fine hair, coarse hair, or is tall or short. Now that you have a list of differences, 
I shall give you an outline of action. But before that, I shall assure you that distrust is stronger than trust and envy stronger than adulation, respect or admiration. The black slaves, after receiving this introduction, shall carry on and will become self-refueling and self-generating for hundreds of years, maybe thousands. Don't forget, you must pitch the old black male versus the young black male and the young black male against the old black male. You must use the dark skinned slaves versus the light skinned slaves and the light skinned slaves versus the dark skinned slaves. You must use the female versus the male. And the male versus the female. You must also have white servants and overseers who distrust all blacks. But it is necessary that your slaves trust and depend on us. They must love and respect and trust only us. Gentlemen, these kits are your keys to control. Use them. Have your wives and children use them. And never miss an opportunity. If you use intensely for one year for the slaves themselves will remain purposely distrustful. Thank you, gentlemen. Now, that's just the beginning of the letter, you know, and, and, and the outline of everything, it goes a lot deeper than that. It is very detailed. And I think that's where our problems lie. It goes back that far, if not even further than that. But that's definitely one of the issues and where we've come today. Let me go back to the phone. Um, one of my callers, uh, Harold, Harold, I want to bring you back into the conversation. What are your thoughts on that? First of all, let me say this here. Um, May Mr. Willie Lynch and his family and anyone else that followed their letter uh, bust hell wide open and burn for eternity. That's first and foremost. Um, This country, um, well, let me put it this way. When I sit back sometimes, I used to love Westerns when I was younger. And even so often I watch them now. And as I've gotten older, you sort of notice that the cowboys were always the good guys and the, the, the Indians were always the bad guys. And that's what this country has done. They pitted, um, they pitted the Americans uh, or whites are always right. What they do is always right. Forget how they might have slew the native folk. Um, everybody else be damned long as we're right. And that mindset uh, is perverse still in this country now. Is that everyone know? Um, is it most? No, but it's far too many. And so when you think about the things that have taken place with law enforcement and how the, how the mass incarceration of, of black men for, um, small offenses of that is no different than the, the cowboys being the good ones and the Native Americans being the bad ones. It started long ago and they put this game into play just like Willie Lynch and it's still playing out. And then when we want to complain about it, we're, we're uh, playing the victim. It's not a matter of playing the victim. It is, in fact, the fact that this was put in place a long time ago. And so, they reap the benefits of it so into th- our harm. Let me ask you this. Do you think that um, because of all these years of everything that's happened, you go that back that far, you go back to the 1700s and, and where we are today. You know, when you he said 300 years, 300 years is 2012, by the way. That's 2012. So at some point, do we think that certain people or a large majority of the population need some type of therapy to overcome the hundreds of years, you know, the, that hundred years of slavery? Yeah, I don't even think it's a matter of therapy. First of all, if we know we've been injured, I think it's incumbent upon others to recognize that the injury is there. 
And the, those who have been injured have to determine, okay, yes, it has happened, um, but we got to keep moving. But at the same time, those who, who benefit from the injury don't dare try to put your foot on my neck. And I, I told don't you, ever I, dare try to. And I, I told you guys, we're going to have a, this is a deep conversation. We're going to have a deep conversation there. We're going to reach into your soul and, and, and reach deep inside because we, we definitely need some, some answers here. Uh, well, because Mark, there's a reason here, we come to where we are today. But go ahead, Harold. Yeah, here, here's, here's what I would say. Um, I'm on the line. Um, you have the other caller on the line. Um, but here's the deal. It was none of our folk that sat down and took Willie Lynch classes. It was not our folk that sat down and, and decided that, hey, we're going to put ourselves in this position to be uh, oppressed, to be victims, to be slaves. Um, it's not us. The conversation needs to start more so on the other side. We know what it is. You know, it's just like we know where the hole is in in the roof, but we didn't put it there. But let me ask you this, because a lot of people will say, you know, at some point we need to forget about that and move on. Well, here's what I say, and and I'll say this here. Uh, We will never forget about it because this country is is selective in its forgetting of things. Fourth of July, we celebrate. 9-11, we remember that. We're selective in our forgetting. What this country doesn't want to do, it doesn't want to own the mess that this country has done to folk. And that is wrong. Now, I, as a black man, uh, I get up every day and I take my butt to work to go get it, despite whatever obstacles may be. And a lot of folk do that, black and white. But nevertheless, I am not, um, I am not shocked by the things I see in this country because of how this country was built. If you start out wrong, how do you get right? Let me go to Marshall. Marshall, at what point, you know, should we, you know, um, move on and forget about it? I think moving on and forgetting about it is it's not going to happen. Nobody's ever going to forget about what happened. I think the problem is, is that um, I, I don't really agree with you, Mr. Harold, that we should put the put the put the first steps on the other side. No racist person is ever going to say, you know what, all those facts and all that information you just gave me about how racist I am is going to change my mind. They do not care. <laughs> they don't care. We have to stop looking for apologies. We're never going to get an apology. We're more than likely, unless something drastic in this country happens, we're never getting reparations. We're not getting that. We have to stop looking for that, for that apology. We have to stop looking for that opportunity to forgive. What we need to do as a black community is to stop being so comfortable. We're comfortable right now. We are okay with everything that is happening to us. Why do I know we're okay with everything that's happening to us? Because we're not doing anything about it. And that's the problem. The problem is that we throw up a hashtag, we mourn, we cry, we put stuff on Facebook, and then we go back to our everyday lives because we're okay living in our nice little three-bedroom house in the suburbs. We're okay with that. That is a problem. Um, so <laughs> until we until we wake up and realize that you're not as comfortable as you think you are, or you're not as safe as you think you are, then nothing is going to change in our community. All right, Harold? Let, let, let me say this. And, and I wasn't saying that uh, they're absolved and responsible, we need to wait for them. What I'm saying is that we know what the problem is. We know when we wake up and, and we go every day, the challenges we're going to face, they need to recognize on their part that, um, that this is about them. This is what they, what they're, if they reap the benefits from it all, they need to understand that it's about them. We still get up and go and handle our business every day. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that, uh, we should be waiting for reparations. We should be waiting for the apology for them. No, 
they need to be having this conversation about the part that they continue to play in this. I don't care if it's one out of a hundred. They need to have that conversation. This is a conversation so we have in barbershops. We have conversations right. that we have in hair salons and frat meetings or whatever case may be. We have these conversations about the injustices towards us. They need to recognize the injustice that, that are perpetrated upon us and make themselves think and say, okay, what is it that we can do? I need to be a committee of one, just like me as a black man. I make sure I'm a committee of one to make sure I handle my business every day and dealing with other brothers. That's what it's going to take for them. They, that, that's what they need to do. We're doing, we're, we're doing, and we have to continue to do what we do. And I agree with you that we need to be handling our business. We need to get up instead of hashtags. We need to be effect, trying to affect real change for what we can, in fact, control. Marshall? So I think that, again, uh, them realizing, they wake up one day and you're like, you know what? This is terrible. I'm going to make a valiant effort to not be the person I am and the person that my, you know, grandfathers and ancestors have been for the last three, 400 years. They can say that. We don't need to wait for that. That that's probably if it's not going to happen, it's not going. It's going to take a long time for that to happen. For the black community, this is the whole simple solution. It's very very simple. We tried it before; they knocked us down. We need to keep trying. Build our own communities. Period. Point blank. Our own grocery store, our own hair salon, our own gas station, our own banks, our own police officers in our own neighborhoods, and we don't have to worry about it. Um, one of the things that a, a, a lot of, you know, activists have talked about is, you know, ending segregation and integration. It helped us because, yes, we got better education, you know, better books, better schools, better water fountains. We got those. We got and Marshall, hold that thought. This is Michael Cargill and you are listening to Come and Talk It. Keep up with the latest breaking news in Austin and around the world. Take a moment to make sure you're following us on Twitter at Talk 1370. Let the tweeting begin. Just one more way to stay connected with Talk 1370. The right choice. Talk 1370. The right choice. Welcome back to Come and Talk It. And now here's Michael Cargill. All right, you get knocked down, you got to get back up again. I'm telling you. I like to I like to play that song this this time of the show because uh, you know we got to pick it back up again. Got to you get knocked down, you got to push through. Um, now we 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 talk a lot about marching, we talk a lot about singing and all that stuff. You know, I don't like to march, and I can't carry a tune too much. You know, so when I you know, I had a problem. Had a problem with universities and people being able to carry a handgun on college campuses, you know, and I had a problem with that because I had, you know, certain members of my family have something happen to them on a college campus or while they were leaving, going to or from a college campus. So I didn't march. I didn't sing. What I did was is I got with the with my legislatures and I fought and I fought and I fought and it took over six years and I fought for six years to get the law changed so that we can legally carry a handgun on a college campus. I don't march. I don't sing. I don't have time for it. I'm an alpha dog. (laughs) I'm the leader of a pack. I'm a lion. In order to dethrone me, you're going to have to kill me. And so that's just how I work. Um, I think those are the things that we need to do. You don't like something, then you know what? Do something about it. Don't talk about it. Be about it. And, and you, you got to make that change. You have to change what you think needs to change and push through. Whenever I see something wrong, I definitely stand up and I say something about it and I do something about it. I definitely do something about it and make it change. 
when I don't like it. So let me uh, go back to Marshall because uh, I, I cut you off there while you were talking. And Mar- okay, so- Marshall's my, my instructor from Atlanta. <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, I'm kind of uh, across the country now with this tour coming up. So it's uh, Atlanta, Charlotte, Dallas, Fort Lauderdale, Houston. That's right, Marshall. You're you're traveling around. You're teaching ladies all over the country now. That is correct. Yes, sir. So far, we have eight cities, and I plan to add uh, about ten more in the fall. Nice. Okay, so give me those cities one more time. So uh, I'll do them in order. This weekend, I'm going to be in Virginia, Shansley. Virginia, um, teaching a class for women. After that, the following weekend, we'll be in Orlando. Uh, then we'll be in Sacramento, uh, July 16th. Then July 21st, I'll be in Fort Lauderdale. And then, yes, Fort Lauderdale, I love it. Um, actually, uh, I skip one, Atlanta, July 8th, and Dallas, August 5th. Okay, and we got to get you here in Austin. I'm going to work on that. I promise. I tell you, after yesterday, you motivated me so much. I'm definitely going to work on getting you here. I, I, I think I want to do it on Labor Day weekend. That's that's the little soft part of me is saying Labor Day weekend. I think I okay. want to do it. So we're, I'm going to work on that, and I think I need to work with Maj again. I think I do want uh, Maj here as well because he hasn't been to Austin and talked to Austin. So we'll see if we can get an Austin crowd together as well. That would be pretty cool. Absolutely. All right, so go ahead and finish what you were saying. Uh, so basically what I was saying is, as far as integration, um, like I was saying, it, it did give us opportunities to have better things than we had before. That is true. The thing that it did to hurt us was that we stopped focusing on creating our own, our own libraries, banks, schools. We stopped focusing on creating those things because we were like, well, instead of creating our own, we can just jo- go join and be a part of these white institutions that we weren't allowed to be a part of before. Is that a bad um, thing? Not necessarily a bad thing. It's not. Um, but back in those days, it's not necessarily a bad thing because, again, it gave us opportunities that we would have never had before. But the problem is we didn't take that knowledge, that information, those opportunities that we got from being a part of those white institutions and bring it back to our community. Mm-hmm. That's where where the problem lies. So you can get all the information from, from whomever, but make sure that you're feeding and helping and helping to grow your community. So that- we... Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was just saying, so, you know, we kind of found that, that you know, esteem and, oh, okay, well, I'm the uh, a member of this, this this law firm, and that's great and all, but, you know, when are you going to open your own law firm and help other black lawyers who don't have the opportunity that you had, you know, just because it's a law firm that, you know, is, is white-owned or is not necessarily looking to hire people who look like you, your skin folk, as I call it. You know what I do? I'm, I'm kind of prejudiced myself. You know what I do is I actually only do business with people that are that are pro gun. Right. Who <laughs> support your interests? That's right. I, 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 I only do business with people that are pro gun. You pro gun, I do business with you. My doctor, right. um, you know, he he buys a lot of guns from me, and 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 he's my doctor. He's a he's <laughs> he's an Asian guy, and I tell you, and I buy a, he, I, I I I trust him with everything. Hey, doctor, this is what I got going on with me, and he comes into the store and he buys a lot of guns. Let me tell you. And also my dentist, yes, my dentist is pro-gun. I tell you, he loves guns. He has so many guns, it, it'll blow your mind, and that's why he's my dentist. So I, You're I'm, in Texas, so this shouldn't be too hard to find, though. Oh, oh, I'm in Austin, so it's real hard to find. Oh, <laughs> you're right. Austin is different. That's right. We're in that, that, that sea of blue. <laughs> All, right. All right, so let me go back to Harold. Harold. Yes. All right, so you, you're, still in, in, in Fort, you're still down in Fort Lauderdale, right? 
No, no, actually, I'm in, in Tallahassee. Oh man, never, why'd you never, leave? Why'd you leave South Florida? Well, uh, here, here's here, here's what I'll tell you. Uh, when I was coming out of family, I was going to go to law school, so I decided to go back down to Fort Lauderdale and look for a house. Me and my wife at the time uh, looked, and I realized I couldn't raise my kids in that environment. Mm. It had become, uh. um, it had changed too much. Really? Uh, and I didn't want to have to live with my neck on a swivel. Mm. And so I came back to Tallahassee, put down roots, and I, I raised my family here, educated them here. They've gone to FAMU in Florida State, and, uh, and they branched out. Um, from here as Tallahassee being home base, but I didn't go back to South Florida to, to live. Um, it, it, it was too much. Mm. It, the environment had, had, had changed that much. And, um, and it, I just couldn't see raising my kids in that environment. Oh, okay. You know, um, but I'm in Tallahassee. I, I, I love it. Um, business is good. Um, the highest crime rate, I think, in Florida. But, um, but it's, 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 it's all good. Now, let me, let me ask you this. I'm going to go to Facebook because uh, Courtney says, Courtney Beasley says, you know, the they and us are too general. Like he's, I think he thinks we need to get away from that they and us. And also he says we are just as guilty as being prejudicial as we claim them to be. If perp- it perpetrate, I'm sorry, perch, oh, God, it perpetuates just as much as we say they perpetuate things. Man, I can't say that word for anything in the world. Perpetuate. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. See, that's see, that's why I love her. <laughs> All right, so uh, that's what Courtney says there. Um, what, any, anybody have any response to that at all? Well, I, I'll say this: I've been in business from uh, a year on the other side. I I come out of FAMU, so I'm celebrating. I think 26 of being 26 years of being in business. And in uh, my first business that I started, I started it uh, specifically for a black market uh, to deal with black folk. Uh, most of my empo- employees were black, uh, students from FAMU, and my intent was to give us the opportunities uh, that they needed, that we that we need that we might not necessarily be afforded um, as readily with other people. And see, and, now, uh, and, and see, I can't I can't do that. I don't feel right doing that. I, I don't know. I, for some reason, I have to reach out to everybody. Oh well, now now keep in mind now. See, I've been in business once again since '91. So when I listen to, um, and and no no disrespect um, to anyone, but when I listen to um, brothers and sisters talk about us doing business with one another, I applaud that. But I've been doing this since I was 23. I grew up in an all-black neighborhood in Carver Ranches where I saw black folk doing business together. So that's all I know. My my parents are from the islands. And so I, I can remember my father, who, my birth father, going all the way to Belgrade to buy goat meat from another Jamaican. Mm. And Jamaicans would bring their car from Miami up to Hollywood just for my dad to do it. And so that's how I operated and everything with my business the first time around. Now that I have matured some, and I have a, a I have a wider customer base. So half of my subs, uh, all of my subs are my friends. Half of my subs are white guys. The other half are black guys. I think I got one or two that's Spanish. Uh, my clientele is both black and white. In order for me to grow my business and be able to do the things I needed to do for my family and their posterity, it needed to be not just inside of my community. It had to be across the board because I would tell brothers, if you limit yourself just our community, because I understood how our community operated, you're not going to be as successful as you can be. I'm not saying you won't find success, but if you can operate one store, 
that's fine. But if you operate a platform, you might be able to operate a chain of stores if it's open to everybody. So it's just like with, with what you do. If you were just trying to do uh, the gun works just in the black community uh, or just stay with Republicans, or you would not be a successful, you have to open it to anybody that comes in it with good intent and who's willing to, to, to spend green dollars. And so that's how, that's how I operated business. I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Because we can't, we can, here's what we can't do. I, I'll tell you a, a brief story. When I first got started in business, <clears throat> I had a gentleman come to see me from um, some national business association, whatever the case may be. And every time he came by, he was always in my way. And finally, we sat out and talked to an older white gentleman, real nice guy. And during this time, they had minority set-asides. And he came in one day, and we were talking, and he was saying, yeah, these minority set-asides, they really need to do something about it because this particular organization were lobbying you know, politicking to have the set aside put away because it wasn't fair. He said, I swear, truth be told you tripping over 15% that's going to minorities. And of that 15%, hell 90% of them is y'all wives because y'all wives could be listed as minority. Mm. So you need, you sleeping with the enemy if that's the case, but you upset because a brother gets some striping, you know, get a hundred thousand dollars out of $10 million contract, but just your boy and got his wife set up in the business as a contract. And she can't tell a backhoe from an excavator. Mm. You know, and that that's real talk, and that that has happened. So you you want to be upset because of this little portion that we supposed to get, and we got to we got to um, share this little portion with with your wife, who's listed as a minority as well. So for me, I don't do no, never did any minority set aside business. I'm a businessman, and long as you come with green mascot visa, we can do business. I'm going to do the same kind of job everybody else do. Um, as as good as anybody else, and I don't care what your color is, it doesn't make me a difference. And what I try to do is to make sure I provide other opportunities for other people who look like me because I'm going to give you the real skinny. I'm going to give you all the things I would give my nephew and my sons, all of the advice about you don't do this, you do this. This is how you handle this. Because you might not necessarily get that from someone else. All right. Hey, Harold, this is Zach in the studio. How you doing? Doing good, Zach. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. So you mentioned that when you first started out that you uh, kind of made it a point to hire people in your community of your color, right? Correct. Uh, well, let, let me put it this. Let me, let me back and put it this way here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a FAMU graduate. So the people I were hiring were FAMU students. And they happen to, and FAMU happens to be the best HBCU out there. And so given that, uh, most of those students that I saw would come through my store, my client base were black. No different than I had a Greek department. The young lady was an AKA. Well, that's who came through my store mostly. That's who I hired to manage my AK, my, my Greek department. Uh-huh. What if there was a white man that, basically did the same thing saying hey i only want to hire white no, people no, no, in my business no 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 you, you you're missing what i'm saying my friend okay because i didn't say that i only hire so i give you a perfect example as i grew my business and i got to have my second location my production facility um i got ready to interview interview a guy um who came from two counties over 
the interview with me. He came in about 5.30. I'll never forget it, and I got much love for him. Last name, Bonnenberger. He mm-hmm. came in. I'm trying to get this order out because I got to get it shipped out to Daytona or something like that. I'm running behind. And because I was hiring him to, in essence, do what I was doing, the interview process was at the side of an embroidery machine. And he helped me finish that order. Then he drove with me to uh, Federal Express was to ship that order out. I hired him. And I put him second in charge. He was my right-hand man. And two months later, I hired his wife, Dana. Much love for them. Mike, I brought them down in Miami for a trade show, introduced them to Kunk Fritters and Kunk Salad. They (laughs) lost their mind after eating that. So it wasn't a matter of me being a black man only hiring black folk. No, I hired capable folk. What I do understand is that there are times and there are people who don't give capable people of color or women who are capable don't give them the same shot. And so what I was doing was if somebody came in, they looked for a job and, and even half my art department were white guys because they were gifted and talented when they came to using Macs. My production manager was a talented brother who could draw his behind off, but he couldn't use computers. So I had black and white. I'm simply saying that I hired people from FAMU. I knew I would give them a chance that they came to me. Is re- it, when when a white guy came to me, he was qualified. I hired him as well. Now, now, as far as a white guy doing that and not hiring somebody because of their color or whatever case me, he dead ass wrong. Mm-hmm. Just like I would have been dead ass wrong had I done that. I agree. All right, and and by the way, I got to give a shout out to Bambi, Bambi Adams. What's going on? How you doing, Dallas? Right. Yep. All right, Bambi, listen to us from Dallas. All right, g- go ahead there, uh, Michelle. I just wanted to, uh, I know that question wasn't posed for me, Zach, but I wanted to give my chance to respond. Yeah, yeah, um, you were asking what if a white man were to, were to only hire white people. Um, personally, for me, that wouldn't bother me at all. I honestly could not care. I feel like there are, com- there are communities, like the Asian community, like the Indian community, like the, the Russian community. You know, there are other communities, other ethnicities who only hire people in their family. People who are from the same countries or same places they're from. Mm-hmm. Nobody bats an eye. No one goes down to Chinatown and like, well, why aren't there black people working at this Chinatown restaurant? Nobody says that. Why? Because that's understood and it's perfectly fine. I honestly wouldn't be mad at it um, because a lot of organizations do that. They just don't say, hey, we're only hiring this one race or this one ethnicity. There's organizations like a gun club, the Well-Armed Women Club, that I used to be a member of. And um, I realized that all of their photos, all of their marketing, their entire website, there was only white women on their website. And I started asking, well, why aren't there, I know there are minorities in this organization, but why aren't they represented on your website and your marketing? And I didn't really get a response. That makes me feel like I'm not welcome. So I'm not going to complain about it. That's who you want in your organization. I'll just go start my own organization and then, you know, go about my day. You know, anyone is, is, is open to hire or include whomever they want to include. And I'm completely okay with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. You good with that? You comfortable with that? You going to take that? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't take that. No, I'm just joking. All right. All right. Awesome, man. I tell you what. Thank you, Marshall. And and hair unknown. Let me go back to Mar- Marshall. Marshall, um, tell everyone the name of your company one more time. Trigger Happy Firearm Instructions. How did you get involved into teaching firearm instructions? So I was in the Army uh, for seven years. 
I wasn't in love with firearms when I was in the Army, but I was introduced to them. I realized I was a pretty good shot. When I got out of the Army um, and moved back to Atlanta, I started working at a gun range here in Atlanta. One of my Army buddies was the manager. He was like, hey, we need somebody here. You'll just work the front desk or whatever. And, you know, this is just something transitional for you until you find something better. Well, I started working there and fell in love with it. I realized I was actually a pretty pretty darn good shot and i love teaching people so um i did that for 13 months became the manager and realized i wanted to go at it alone and uh start my own company and and, and teach the way i wanted to teach so that's kind of how i got into this business and I like something you said yesterday. You, you know, you were telling some. You, you said something, and then you said, you know, because you're not going to hurt my feelings because I was married to a cop. Right. <laughs> and a lot of people don't understand that. And I don't. It's no. We have no ill, you know, ill feelings towards each other at all. Um. So, but yeah, it's, it's it's brutal. He was a different person after the academy, and everything was just like ah, cop this, cop that. And a lot of other cop wives have told me that, like, yes, it, it, it's so different. Um. <laughs> And their whole mindset changes, so yeah, you can't hurt my feelings. Yeah. Hey, hey, Mike. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, not to cut you off, but let me go back to the young lady recording um, that you played. So I wanted to do this. I want to thank you for your service as well as um, this wonderful young sister you have on the phone. That I'm gonna do everything I can to to push business her way through any bros I know that's in Atlanta or any any sorrows I know that's in Atlanta because I really want to see her deal grow because I think it's it's is well needed. It it really is. But I also want to talk about the young lady who was crying. Mm. For your average listener, that young lady personifies everything that is right that your average listener um loves. She's a patriot. She's a veteran. Okay? Not just her but her husband. Mm. And here's a woman that I'm pretty sure strapped it on with the boot camp, put her life on the line, and broke down simply because an officer was following her. That is not lost on me. She might have gone overseas and had someone shooting at her, any number of things. But what broke her down was a police officer following behind her and pulling her over. That should tell this country something, that there's something wrong. And and that and that's why and that's why I brought up the the Willie Lynch letter and and read that letter because a lot of people haven't heard that story before they probably don't know anything about it but you got to understand this stuff goes all the way back to like the 1700s and this is something that's been ingrained in people and it's been passed down from generation to generation and, and that's the point I was making that it is is not is not on us and I agree we we should have our own see the other side need to hear that letter. We live that letter. They need to hear that letter. They need to understand where they get it from and decide however they want to do it. We we we're living with the effects of it. And and, and, and I think and I think uh, you know we honestly I honestly think that we need to go to some type of you know therapy or counseling or something like that to overcome that and and move together as a society as as one human race. Is that? But that won't happen. Why? Well, here, here's the reason why I, I don't believe it'll happen. Um, I think the average person is well-intended. I do. But I also think the average person is not willing to stand up when they see something that's wrong when it comes to race. Because if I stand up, this is how I say it, if I stand up for something when it comes to race, I potentially put you in a position that you're on the equal plane with me. 
and there's not and, and there, there might be a sense there's there's not enough to go around for us to be on equal see us being equal disadvantage is my children or my children's children if I'm holding that advantage seat right now. You all had a situation there in Texas several years ago where a young lady applied to school, didn't get in uh, because of, she wanted to say because of some set-aside whatever. Again, in fact, just in the general population, she didn't have the grades to get in. She was more so concerned the fact that some minority supposed to got the slot that she did. See, you can't get ahead of me. But yet, you couldn't make it in the general population with everybody else. So you want to come on this side and say, I should have been in. This is the person that kept me out. No, you couldn't get in. See, she wanted to be advantaged um, by our disadvantage, and that's not fair, man. You got too many. You got too many that think along those lines. All right, and Marshall. Um, I remember that story, and I thought it was actually hilarious um, <laughs> to watch how that all played out. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there there are people out there who take advantage of the situation that we're in, and a lot of us don't realize the situation that we are in. And um, for a lot of black people, they're like, well, I've never experienced racism or I've never been in that situation just because it doesn't directly affect you or you haven't directly been um, involved in the situation doesn't mean it's not happening to other brown people across this country. Um, So that's why a a lot of our activism is kind of like we can't be one united front because people are like, well, I've never been you know, harassed by police officers. So why do I need to protest or why do I need to go to a black owned bank? And that's that's a huge issue. We have to be on a united front always. All right. I, I tell you, you know, I want to thank you guys for coming on the show today, you know, because I wanted to go back and explain all this stuff and, and go back to the 1700s a little bit to maybe give people an insight of a little bit of where we, you know, how do we get to where we are today? Uh, what I didn't do is tell you about law enforcement and where law enforcement came about. A lot of people don't know that the reason we have police officers or law enforcement is uh, their job was to go and retrieve runaway slaves. Patrol. Yeah. And so that's where a lot of that stuff comes from. And, you know, once we understand our history, you know, we, we're kind of forgetting history. We're forgetting for, where things come from and how things came about and understanding why people are responding to the way they respond to law enforcement. There's a reason for that. And once you understand history, you understand where we've come from and, and why things are, the you know, where, where law enforcement came from and those different things like that. Then you understand why we're in, in this situation today. And, and I ask convenience. And I always ask people, you know, to please, please, when you get pulled over by law enforcement, this is it's not about I'm not telling you about the law or anything like that. I'm just trying to tell you how to get home safely, how to go home to your family. You get pulled over by law enforcement and you have a gun in the vehicle. Keep your hands in plain sight. Even if you get pulled over, you don't have a gun in your vehicle. Keep your hands in plain sight. Matter of fact, I'm not going to tell you. I want Marshall to tell you. Marshall, can you tell me in about one minute, what do do I need to do when I get pulled over by police? Sure. When you get pulled over by a police officer, you need to decide, is your right? If you're going to record the interaction, you can definitely set. If you are, set up that camera wherever it's going to be. Do not do any additional movements. Your hands should be on the steering wheel. Do not move. Do not rustle around for your ID. You will get all the information when the officer directs you to when they get to your window. All of your windows need to be rolled down. And then if it's nighttime, you need to have your light on in your vehicle so they can see everything inside of your vehicle very clearly. 
Very simple as that. You know, and this is all about you trying to get home. You're, it's not for you to argue about that on the side of the road about that stop, about whether or not your light's out or whether or not you ran that stop sign. Your job is to do that in court. You're not going to argue that or fight that on the side of the road. That's what your attorney's for. Let your attorney do that. And that's what it's all about. And let me tell you, um, we got to get out of this slave and slave master mentality. And I see this when I travel all around the you know, different parts of the country. Certain people are subservient and don't have the drive or the determination to lead, only to follow and be told what to do. As always, more guns equals less crime. Go out and buy yourself a gun. You've been listening to Come and Talk It with Michael Cargill. Check in and stay up to date all day long. In the car, on my way to work, heading home. Listening online keeps you in touch while you work at Talk1370.com. Get it right now. Talk 1370. Anywhere I need. The right choice. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.